Sunsets and sunrises here are just beautiful. I mean, you've just got a landscape that's so different to anywhere else. And there's just, you know, you come around the corner, you see a red deer stag or family of longhorns, and it's just, I mean, it's pretty much magical, isn't it? It's just something so peaceful about this place. Is this the Nep Oak? This is the Nep Oak. Absolute monster of a tree. Fantastic, about 500 years old. It's got an incredible history. Um, I mean, its recent history is fantastic because this is where Charlie and Izzy first started thinking about rewilding, which is what we're famous for, um, and has changed the landscape here. Fantastic, I mean, wildlife is just so abundant. How, how big is that trunk? I mean, do you know the width of it? Um, I think we measured it at about nine metres. But it's got some serious girth to it, and it's just got an amazing canopy as well. And it's so good. It's the perfect time of year to see it because you've got the young acorns on it. And you've got full canopy, loads of leaves. Um, and from this angle, you can see why it gets my attention so frequently. And that's this split down the middle Ooh, where yeah. it's naturally hollowing out. But it's not about to do anything anytime soon. It's got a history of cable bracing through it. You can see the chains that the Canadian soldiers wrapped around it. They're old tank chains. What? In the, what, in the Second World War? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so there's loads of Canadians based here in training. And they saw this split in the tree and presumably went, right, we're going to do something about that. We're going to save that tree. And it just goes to show how important trees are to people that they would do that. This one's just a whopper. Look at it. I mean, it's just an incredible place to be, isn't it? Just, you know, stood underneath this massive canopy. Oh, it's very, very special. Yeah. So you're taking us to the uh, orange route, did you say? Yeah, we're going to do a bit of the orange route. So if we follow the uh, castle drive um, along, we should be able to see plenty of really interesting trees, which is what I'm all about. <laughs> Hello, I'm Liv Bolton, and you're listening to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make the outdoors a bigger part of your life. This episode is all about Tom Burns, Tom is the ranger and woodsman of the Nep Estate in West Sussex, a pioneering rewilding project led by the estate's owners and conservationists, Charlie Burrell and Isabella Tree. But growing up in the town of Crawley and passionate about rugby, Tom never expected that his life would lead him to a career where he's up at dawn with the birds, coppicing woodland and protecting ancient trees. Tom took me for a walk around Nep and we saw so much wildlife, including Exmoor ponies, stags, longhorn cattle and buzzards. It's a truly beautiful place filled with hope about nature and protecting our planet's biodiversity. But before we get to Tom's story, I wanted to say thank you so much to all of you who've listened to series eight. I can't believe that we've got to the last episode of this series already. I've been on walks and had conversations with Carla Corey, who's one of only two black female mountain leaders in the UK, Elise Wortley, who follows in the footsteps of female explorers of the past and who survived for weeks on her own in the Canadian wilderness for the TV series alone. Katie O'Neill Gutierrez, mum of two who founded the Blaze Trails parent and baby walking community. Sarah Banks, the author of The Wild Guide to North East England. And Manira Ali, who is attempting to walk all of London's 3,000 parks and green spaces. I've absolutely loved making this series and hopefully I'll be back with more very soon. If you enjoyed the episodes, it would be wonderful if you could subscribe or write a review on Apple Podcasts about the Outdoors Fix and please feel free to recommend it to your family and friends. Thank you. I also want to thank the outdoor footwear company Merrill for kindly supporting the Outdoors Fix. Their backing makes this podcast possible and they always allow me the freedom to find the people and stories I think are important to showcase. Do check out their Women's Speed Eco Waterproof Hiking Shoes. They're really comfortable and come in really fun colours. 
Merrill have kindly offered listeners of The Outdoors Fix a 20% off discount on their products at merrill.co.uk. So just use the code OUTDOORS20, which is valid on one product per person until the 31st of December 2023. Anyway, back to Tom. Don't miss his suggestions for best places to see ancient trees at the end of the episode, as well as a minute of the sounds of nature from NEP for a little bit of escapism in your busy day. So here's Tom. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the Outdoors Fix podcast and inviting me to NEP. No problem at all. Such a special place. Fantastic to have you. Can you describe to the listeners whereabouts we're sitting and what we can see around us? Ah, well, we are sitting in a lovely little wood in the Parkland, which is in the middle block of NEP. It's split up into three, north, middle and south. And we've uh, nestled ourselves down in this lovely little woodland full of Scots pine and oak trees and a small herd of longhorn cattle checking that we're doing the right thing. I know, they're about close eye on us. 50 metres away and we're sat on a big long trunk as well, which is a nice comfy spot. Absolutely. We'll see in 45 no minutes chair. how you're feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is an incredibly special place and you know, you're the ranger and woodsman at NEP, yeah. which is a 3,500 acre estate in West Sussex. Absolutely. Um, it's a rewilding project. Mm-hmm. For my listeners who maybe don't know much about NEP, mm. can you describe to them what happens here and why it's so special? Oh, okay, yeah, well, um, obviously we are on the NEP estate in West Sussex, beautiful West Sussex countryside, um, and it's old farms, an old collection of farms. It's a big estate, three and a half thousand acres, and there's, we're famous for rewilding which is about putting natural processes at the forefront and allowing natural processes to take place. Uh, so that means having uh, things like the right herbivores in here, our longhorn cattle, uh, Tamworth pigs and Exmoor ponies and red deer, fallow deer, roe deer, all at the right sort of levels and all mixing and, and, and doing their thing, grazing and, and, and poaching the soils and so on. Um, and instead of fields, they have 750 acres to roam around in in Mm. here and in the northern block it's 1100 acres which is a massive massive area and it just allows them to exhibit natural behaviors go where they want to do what they want to um, and uh, that helps shape the natural world around us and it's led to so much success you know from turtle doves and nightingales and purple emperors large tortoiseshell butterflies Um, it's just a a fantastic place for wildlife and for people as well so a lot of people come here for the wildlife for the natural world and 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 to immerse themselves in nature which is fantastic so it's working with nature and and this estate about 25 years ago was a very very different place wasn't it absolutely yeah 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 so it was a traditional farm so um you know there would be uh, arable crops here, there'd be livestock here, leaves falling on your face, that's good. Um, and, um, and it would be like any other farm that you would see in, in, in a traditional setting in West Sussex, you know, intensive, um, working really hard to try and make it profitable um, and, and generate food off of the land. And that was incredibly difficult to, to do, which is why Charlie and Izzy um, were looking at other options and found rewilding underneath a, an oak tree the, the Nep Oak and um, the rest is history really. Yeah, so they so. really have found that since they've worked with nature, the biodiversity here has absolutely skyrocketed. Oh, it's through the roof. It's through the roof. It doesn't matter what type of wildlife you're after, except for maybe coastal species. We're not doing very well for <laughs> seals and sharks. Um, but there's a, a fantastic array of wildlife to see here at any time of year as well. 
Um, even in even in the depths of winter, you know, you can see muddy Tamworth pigs and and, and longhorns and uh, jays and things like that. So it's just a, a very special place to be, um, and it's working so well at a time where we really need to reverse the decline in wildlife species and and, and the lack of biodiversity. Um, and uh, yeah. It's, a, it's working really well. Yeah, oh well, I mean, amazing that you're the ranger here in Woodsman and, and you've brought me to a wood on the estate, obviously perfect for it. Absolutely. Um, so can you tell me a bit about what your job involves, the mm -hmm. tasks that you have to do, and maybe a sort of typical week at this time of year? Sure, so um, it's a great question because it would be a different answer depending on the time of year. But generally speaking, I think on paper, my job is about looking after trees and woodlands and that's everything from tree safety to tree planting um, and ancient tree management and things like that um, and then I also coordinate volunteers at NEP so we've got over 120 volunteers fantastic people who give up their time to really help us uh, with such a wide variety of stuff you know we've got people walking footpaths and, and checking fence posts and, and fence lines and engaging with our visitors helping them stay on the right track or um, explain what wildlife's going on here or a bit more about the white stalk project or the beavers or the longhorns or whatever it might be and um, we've got practical volunteers which we uh, really launched this year in, in January and that's got a, a practical work program going where the work is um, so that could be in the garden or in the woods with me or on the on the farm somewhere or on the estate somewhere getting involved and there's loads of other opportunities as well everything from ecological surveys I could I could talk about it the whole interview but I don't think that your <laughs> listeners would want me to do that so um, but yeah so there's there's a lot of volunteer management and coordination going on there um, and then the other sort of third pillar of my role is, is about access so that's uh, maintaining rights of way permissive paths everything from gates and bridges to paths and and, and so on so um, and then the sort of the, the extra bits is the sort of unknown and you know every ranger doesn't matter who they work for or where they work for will have an unknown part of their job and that is a lot of reactive work and it's kind of my job to get involved in everyone's business so um, <laughs> I could be um, you know helping Penny and the ecology team out with um, some fencing or clearance or or getting involved in some surveys, I do a dormouse survey, butterfly survey, stuff like that, or um, helping out with the, the stockman rounding up cattle, moving cattle and all the rest of it. Endless amounts of work, but that's how I like it. It's nice and busy, you know. And you're definitely a morning person, aren't you? 100%, 100%, yep. It's, uh, it's a fantastic place to be early in the morning and I'm, I've always been an early riser, so uh, I like to get up before everyone else and, and, and make a start and, uh, and just enjoy where I work as well and, and have it to myself for an hour before everyone else turns up. It's always nice. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just such a special place to be that you, know, you can't wait to get back in, basically. I bet. And you've been here since September 2022. Yes, yes, yeah. done a year. And I want to talk about how you got here in a second, but you're also, outside of your job, mm. you're a volunteer for the Ancient Tree Forum. I am, yes, yes. So with a, with a couple of chaps, uh, Bob and Andrew, we, we help coordinate the Sussex branch of the Ancient Tree Forum, pun intended. Um, and uh, we, we help organise walks in various places in Sussex, looking at veteran and ancient trees, as well as, you know, sort of younger trees as well, looking at guiding them into veteranhood. Um, and um, yeah, so I help out a bit with that. And until recently, I was tree warden as well for my local parish council. But um, unfortunately, I don't have the time to do it all. So I had to cherry pick the bits that I'm better at. Oh, well, I want to talk <laughs> about that as well in a minute. But I'd love to go back a bit and find out how this all started. So where did you grow up? And were you outdoorsy when you were younger? Definitely. So I'm, um, 
I don't come from a rural background or anything like that. I'm a Crawley boy, but don't tell any of my colleagues. That's no, a secret. But yeah, <laughs> no, I, I grew up in a town uh, not too far from here in West Sussex, and um, I uh, always used to mess about outside. Always liked being out, outdoors. I was never inside playing PlayStation or anything like that. And um, I went to college. I had a sort of you know normal education and, and went to college and was studying photography and PE and IT and everything I thought I should be and then uh, it came to applying for university time and uh, found out that people would pay you to work in the countryside I thought I'll have a bit of that um, so I went off to Aberystwyth University and studied countryside management um, spent uh, uh, my middle year my second year at Wakehurst Place as a work experience boy there for a year uh, and just fell in love with trees woods and everything nature basically um, and then yeah sort of carved managed to carve a career out of it which is pretty good I'm very pleased with that I bet so hang on when we let's go back a tiny bit then to when you found out they did countryside management at university mm. yeah. do you remember the moment that you found out about that course and and why you thought okay that's for me yeah definitely I remember looking through a, a you know a, a catalogue of courses that you could go through hoping for some sort of inspiration hoping for a spark of something like yeah I fancy a bit of that got to see got to countryside management and um, it's like, well, well, what's countryside management? Doesn't, don't woods look after themselves? Don't, you know, nature just sort of happens, doesn't it, at the fringes? And, you know, the more you look into it, the more you realise that, you know, actually there's a, there's a lot of work out there and um, a lot of really interesting, meaningful work. And it just sparked a passion and, and sparked a real interest and sort of, yeah, I just thought, I'll get into it. And the more I got into it, the more I got glued into it. And here I am. Yeah. So after Aberystwyth Uni then, where mm. did you start working? How did you, you know, where was the first paid job that you had? Uh, so the first one was I, I came out of university and there weren't many range of jobs in Sussex at the time. Um, and uh, I managed to pick up an apprenticeship with West Sussex County Council um, and help look after sites like the Downs Link and Worthway, which is um, long distance bridleways. Um, and West Sussex County Council have a, a collection of countryside sites that they help look after and, and maintain. And um, yeah, it was with a really, really good team there who taught me a lot. I think, you know, in my kind of practical job you learn more when you're out doing the job and, and you're you know putting fence posts in in the rain and you're you know dragging trees around and yeah. actually you know dealing with with all the sorts of things that you do in an actual job that's when you really learn and, and, and understand it and they were fantastic at bringing me on and um, out of that um, it just so happened that a ranger retired at Buckham Country Park which was my first proper job and I was there for about nine years uh, living on site and that was really important to me because um, that is in Crawley, where I was born and, and brought up, and it's where I took some of my first footsteps. So I was managing a country park that, you know, had a real meaning for me. Um, and there, yeah, again, there was a lovely team there of people, and, and really enjoyed that. So when you say you're managing a country park, what were some of the tasks that you had to do in that job? Oh, so well, um, Buckham Country Park is a, is, is a triple SI for for ponds and streams and wet woodlands. Um, so there's a lot of management there, um, particularly focused on dragonfly species, so getting the habitats right. Uh, that could be battling invasive species, that could be um, you know, um, managing the, the tree species along there, and the density, the amount of trees that are along the line, trying to let more light into ponds. They also have got fantastic heathlands as well. So there's a lot of uh, managing invasive species, native species as well as rhododendron, which is a non-native. You've also got countless young birch trees to, to pull and, and, and get out to maintain that lovely heather landscape um, and then there's a lot of woodlands there as well which is um, my main sort of uh, passion if you like for the countryside now so um, yeah I mean everything everything from 
giving people great access to the countryside and, and something to do when they're there and a bit of information and education when you're there to maintaining and improving that place for people and for wildlife. Mm. And it is just so varied, you know, fencing to, oh God, yeah, I mean, the list of jobs is just endless, really. Yeah. I'd encourage people to volunteer in their local country park to find out more and, um, or any, any wild space, get in touch with the wildlife trusts or national trust or someone like that and, and, and go and experience it for yourselves because it's incredibly great thing to do for yourself and for the planet you know and mm. it's um, very rewarding so nep came calling yes last year but how what was the route from where were you were talking about before mm. to you know to here so i um after working at local authority I, I got a job as a ranger for the national trust first at sheffield park and garden in east sussex and then after covid i joined um the surrey hills team um up there um, and um, I was area ranger for a bit and um, had a fantastic time at places like Leith Hill and Denbys Hillside. Mm. Again, working with volunteers, you know, giving access to people, um, but conserving wildlife there, heathlands, woodlands, <laughs> again, um, and, um, you know, wildflower rich meadows and chalk grassland and things like that. And um, had a fab time with them. But this job came up and I only live a mile away. So, uh, it, it was a bit of a no-brainer, really. I pretended that, you know, I was pretty casual in my interview with Jason. You know, yeah, yeah, I, I will consider it. And inside, I was chewing his hand off. <laughs> I bet, I bet you were. Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, yeah, that was a year ago. And so talking about the role then, for example, in here, what would you be thinking about in your role as ranger and woodsman? Well, in here, I mean, principally, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the trees. I'm looking down at the ground. It, it's, it's very difficult uh, to, to explain generally because um, here at NEP we are rewilders and that's about putting natural processes at the forefront so it's not as much intervention as you know my, my previous jobs mm. where it was all about as a ranger getting involved shaping habitats allowing spaces for natural processes to take place whereas here we're very much like well let's let let's try and let it happen mm. as much as possible so um, principally it, with the trees and woods around the rewilding project I'm looking things like tree safety um, there's also an element of harvesting timber for things like the biomass boiler mm. for firewood um, and also for sawmill timber. You know, there's 190 properties, I think, in total in the estate. Wow. So there's always furniture and beams of a card and all this kind of stuff. So we don't take more than we need, but we do need to be careful about making sure we have that stuff. Um, because particularly when it comes to timber, um, we have a bit of a problem in this country of importing far too much timber from other countries instead of using what we have already in stock um, around. And it's just wonderful to see that journey from um, a tree to sawmill timber used on the estate, never left the estate and uh, being used like traditionally it would have been. Mm. Um, but if this was outside of the rewilding project um, and, and on another site, I would be thinking about what tree species we have, what's here already, that's the most important thing. You establish what wildlife you've got, what plant species, what tree species you've got, and then you think about what are the most important factors in that. Um, so here we've got some really nice young oak trees, um, and it would be fab to give them a bit more space perhaps, and allow them to really branch out. Oaks are open grown species, and of course we love that shape of a tree. If you ask a child to draw a tree, they draw the outline of an oak, mm. don't they, straight up, and then a big cloud on top. Mm. Um, and trees like oak trees will only do that if they're given the space to do that naturally or with or with an inter intervention so um yeah that's that's probably what i would focus on and of course oaks are so fantastic for wildlife aren't they you know there's so many species hundreds of species associated with oak trees and require it as part of their life process for food or shelter or 
whatever it might be. But um, yeah, they are king of the woods in this country, definitely. And so coppicing is part of your job as well. Is that something that you do here? Yeah, so we did a, a fantastic session of coppicing last year up in the Northern Block um, near Shipley Football Club around the corner. There's a nice wood there called Wrenches Woodland. Um, and it's an old hazel coppice woodland. And that's uh, predominantly hazel in the understory and it's got a few oak standards, big trees um, within that woodland. And uh, with the use of volunteers, the lovely people came out and we did a lot of coppicing in there and we were coppicing four products. So um, the, the material that we were getting out of that wood has been used at the market garden, mm -hmm. it's been used in the, in the walled garden, uh, a lot of it was used in stork nesting material because we've got a, a population of non-flying storks that needed to have a helping hand to make nests. Uh, which they did do this year, which is very mm. exciting. Um, and um, we also uh, wanted to set some timber aside for, for making some charcoal at some stage as well, which is a very exciting thing to do. We're very keen for that. So coppicing, if you can explain for people who might not be familiar with the term, yeah, what it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So coppicing is a, is a very ancient form of woodland management. People have been coppicing for thousands of years. You know, Neolithic man discovered that if you cut some trees down, then they'll pop back up and they'll regrow. And it also prolongs the life of the tree as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're just thinking about it from a what can we get from coppicing, you get a, a timber product out of it, depending on how long you leave it for. It depends on how long, uh, what, what kind of timber you'll get out. You know, if it's obviously if you leave it longer, you'll get a bigger crop. If you, you have a shorter cycle, then you'll get smaller stuff for basket weaving or, or what have you. But, you know, obviously the bigger it is, the more it's used for things like shipbuilding back in the days and things like that. Um, so coppicing is a fantastic habitat management tool as well. You are cutting the tree um, down to the ground and you're allowing it to regenerate back up with fresh young growth. And what that does is that lets sunlight into the woodland floor and that sparks and that opens up a seed bank with all these wonderful wildflowers and foxgloves and red campion and things like that. Bluebells, of course, um, pop up and you're providing a wonderful habitat in there and a lovely cycle and as those trees those young trees that regrowth grows back up it falls a real thick layer fantastic for nesting uh, birds so you know blackbirds of course but also some of the interesting things like warblers and black caps things like that um, so it's a it's a really old management tool which benefits the person coppicing and also the wildlife in that wood as well so yeah, it's fantastic some of our oldest trees are coppice trees yeah. um, they can go on for such a long time because of coppicing well it's really interesting how you're saying that you know it is a practice now considered to be really good for biodiversity as mm -hmm. well so you were touching on it before a little bit about how your job differs because you're at NEP yes. than it has before. So mm -hmm. what would you think, say the main differences are in terms of what NEP's doing in terms of the woodland than what mm -hmm. you were maybe doing beforehand? Well, I think the main differences here are is it's so much more like what our natural world would have looked like a few hundred years ago compared to reserves, nature reserves and parks that I've worked on before which aren't, they're, you know, they're either parklands that were planted by people like Capability Brown or they're heathlands that involve a lot of intensive management to keep going because of the lack of things like grazing herbivores. You know, these longhorn cattle that are behind us are doing a fantastic job of creating space for nature, whether they're, you know, um, in the wet making big areas of, of muddy clay that then in the spring gives an opportunity for wildflowers seed to, to come up and see that diversity in the flora. Um, or they're munching on stuff, keeping stuff low, um, eating some of the young trees that would grow up and form what we call secondary woodland and they could be quite crowded woodlands that don't give things like the oaks the space to grow up. They're keeping that competition down um, and uh, that, that's, that's a big part of, of what we have here and what's different but also the mindset here about 
you know, really, do we have to get involved? Do we have to go and do that? If the space is big enough, if the right components are in the right place, will it not do that itself? Will mm. it not work itself out? And, you know, oftentimes it does. And I think that's, that's just brilliant, isn't it? It's fantastic. Yeah. Did you ever have to think and stop yourself from doing something? Mm, yeah, all the time. Yeah. All the time. I've spent 15 years getting involved, you know, <laughs> being, being that, that factor as a part of a wildlife habitat, you know, and, and, and making visible, clear changes and trying to get somewhere to, to, to A to B, particularly with things like high-level stewardship schemes and, and things that are, you know, the successes are measured. You know, have you removed a certain amount of this? Is that looking like that? Do you have that percentage of wildflowers? Do you have, the, you know, all these key species, are they here, are they registered? Things like that, you know, it's very, the onus is on you getting in there and getting involved. And to have that pressure removed and be like okay well you know what, what do we think is best and what's going to work and is, is really powerful and it, it really you know is a massive weight off your shoulders you could be quite nervous as a, as a site manager to try and get somewhere into a favorable condition or meet the success criteria of a of a, of a scheme or, or a plan um so yeah i mean i, I do it all the time I, I walk past trees and i think oh yeah i could do with a thin oh no no hang on no we no, no no don't do that put the chainsaw back yeah. um and things like that and um yeah so there's there's a personal adjustment and that i always knew that was going to be part of the challenge as well um but i'm enjoying it i'm enjoying it and i'm learning all the time and that's a really really important part of it for me is um and for so many others you know you never know everything about the countryside and the natural world you're always learning there's always a bit more there's always new stuff being found out or, um, and that's just part of the delight really yeah well I was going to ask what are your favorite parts of the job and the, and the hardest parts hardest part probably putting wet chainsaw trousers on from the day before in the winter <laughs> that's always a bit of a tough one um, but I think the most rewarding parts are, is going to be spring isn't it you know that that bit where wildlife and trees wake up for the, for the year ahead the season ahead um, you start getting your migrating birds coming in you hear your first chiff chaff you know your first turtle dove things like that you, you just have a smile on your face and it's like all the hard work through autumn and winter is worth it i've got it now um, but that's not to say i don't enjoy autumn and winter i do you know i am a, a woodland management geek and i do enjoy it and uh, that is the time of year that we we get stuck into woods because wildlife is either migrated or it's dormant um, not nesting things like that that's when you shape your woodlands and your habitat so that's where the really good fun work for me happens is, is in autumn and winter but that's not to say that I don't enjoy putting the tools down in spring and summer and getting on with other stuff <laughs> you mentioned the birds there but you do love to record bird song sometimes yes tell me yes. about that sometimes it works um yeah um my mind it all came from my dad who's got a real passion for sound he's always worked in, in his sound and um, he got me a microphone because I spend all my time, oh, that's a nice sound, that's nice. Um, and then uh, I started recording natural sounds, whether that's water, whether that's birdsong, um, or just, you know, the, the crunch of frosts and stuff like that. I just love it. Love and you hear things so differently through a microphone. It's yeah. so much more sensitive than your own ear. And to hear that played back, it's just, it's fantastic. It's like a, it's like going from 2D to 3D, mm. isn't it? You know, all of a sudden you're really immersed in it. Um, so I have this incredible backlog of recordings on my computer that one day I will get around to posting and, and putting up online, but there's a few stuff out there. But Dawn Chorus is particular wonderful thing and you've recorded nightingales here absolutely yes now that was that was first on my list of things to record when i joined nep um and uh, had tremendous success with that i was really really pleased um heard nightingales in a real thicket of blackthorn and hawthorn um yeah to set the microphone up go off have a cup of tea 
uh, come back and, and, and really hope that it started singing again. And it did. Um, I've listened to it and it's beautiful. Oh, glad, glad yeah. you like it. It's, um, yeah, it's a really wonderful, wonderful bird song to, yeah. to hear. They're, yeah. they're fantastic creatures. Well, they're quite rare, aren't they, nightingales? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they are rare. Um, um, but they're, they're, they're coming back in places like Nep um, and surrounding sites as well. Uh, I've spoken to quite a few people in the surrounding area um, and um, they're hearing more and more nightingales, which is, which is phenomenal. It's, it's really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So coming to your love of trees then, Yes. where did this love of trees come from? I'm not really sure where it started or how it started. Um, I just, there's something wonderful about trees and I think everyone loves trees really. You know, everyone's very passionate about trees, even if you don't know what species it is or, you know, it, where it fits in, in, in the landscape or habitat that you're in. Um, there's something about humans and trees that goes back thousands and thousands of years. We have this fondness for them. Um, and uh, and it, it's just like another world. You know, they're on a completely different timeline to us. You know, instead of uh, talking decades, you're talking centuries, if not millennia. Um, and, you know, the trees that you plant now, particularly things like oak trees and sweet chestnuts, you know, they could be here in 900 years plus time. Yeah. Um, and that's that's crazy, isn't it? That's, that's I mean, it's epic um, it's a hell of a life cycle isn't it um, so what are your favorite trees then oh it depends it depends on the time of year for me um, I think um, it's wonderful seeing those those new shoots on the hazel coppice that you coppiced in winter that's always an exciting time it's a bit like planting seed and seeing it germinate um, and it's always a bit of a relief as well that the trees you've coppiced do come back <laughs> um, I think in, in in times like the middle of summer to see an enormous veteran oak tree in mm. full canopy is something else like the nep oak for mm. example that is just an incredible tree um, and then as you move into winter you can actually see the depth of the trees once the leaves have come off you can you know in a broadleaf woodland you can really see the scale of trees um, and you can appreciate the architecture of trees the nooks and crannies of them, something like a an ancient sweet chestnut you know all the twists and gnarly mm. bark and um, cavities and everything that's going on in that tree you can really appreciate um, so the answer is I don't have one, really. But well, you fair know. enough. You, you volunteer for, as I mentioned, the Ancient Tree Forum. So I was yeah. going to say then, how would you identify an ancient versus a veteran tree? And what is the difference between those? It's a, it's a really good question. And it's a really tough question. I think even the Ancient Tree Forum is still trying to define it. <laughs> right. Um, it's, it, it's tricky because um, what we're dealing with, really, what we're looking for is veteran features. And a tree that's only... 20, 30 years old can have veteran features, things like okay. loose bark and cavities and dead wood in the canopy and things like that and hollows and um, stuff like that. So what we're looking at is a selection of features in a tree that would then we could call it veteran or ancient. And of course all different trees are on, are on different timescales. So a sweet chestnut or an oak, like we say, could live 900 years plus, but your apple tree's not. Um, right. So do we, do we, you know, condemn the apple tree to never make it to veteran tree status? Because that wouldn't be fair. Um, and it's not right either. You know, fruit trees are, are fantastic because they do have short life cycles. They actually provide things like dead wood and loose bark much quicker. So things like noble chafer beetle you'll find in orchards and you won't find it in an oak tree. Um, it would be um, wrong of us to, to, to say all trees have got to get to 800 years before we consider them. But okay, so it's specific to the tree when, when you call it an ancient or a veteran. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. so if you're talking, you say about sweet chestnut and mm. oaks, you know, what would be the standard 
age for a sort of ancient one of those. Oh, there's a lovely buzzard going over the top there. Um, a, a standard, what, standard age? Yeah, kind of when they would start being considered an ancient. I'd say anything from sort of 200 years plus, really. Right. Okay, yeah. amazing. Yeah. But then what you're saying about an apple tree, that would be, what would the lifespan of that be? Oh, it depends on your, on, on your type of apple tree, but I'd say it would start giving you sort of veteran features after about sort of 30, 40 years. Yes, yeah, so it's a real, yeah, yeah. real difference. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's completely different, yeah. completely different. And so each tree, you know, needs to have its own sort of, you know, you need to have a look at it and assess it and and appreciate the features rather than the age, I'd say. Yeah, okay, um, so what about a beech tree? How old would it be to be an ancient or veteran beech tree? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's no strict rule on it, but I'd, uh, you know, you start seeing veteran features on, on, on beech trees from about 100 years plus, really. Okay. Uh, you know, really dense timber on them and they, and they grow fabulous shapes as well. Um, but again, they can live for hundreds of years, so you can, you can see really old beech trees in places like Ashdown Forest, Sheffield Park's got some lovely old beech trees. Um, they're just, yeah, they're another category of wonderful old trees. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Nepo, I think we've talked about it being at least um, about 500 years old. Yeah, around about 500, yeah, 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 absolutely. And so what about some of the other trees in here? I mean, you know, for example, that oak over there, yeah. what would you say that would be? Well, that, I mean, that's probably getting on for about sort of 50 to 80 years old or so. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not a whopper. Um, and the one not it, yet. The one further there, that's a bit older, isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely a bit older. That's an old hedgerow tree. You can see the blackthorn and, and hawthorn either side of it clearly in a nice long line. So at some point that would have been a hedgerow and that would have been your standard tree in there. But that's looking at about sort of sort of 150 to 200 years old or so. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's a lovely tree. It's got a nice shape to it, but it's not finished growing yet. Yeah. So oak trees spend uh, 300 years growing up, 300 years chilling out, and 300 years plus slow, slowly declining. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So after about 300 years, they'll sort of reach their max height and width, and then they'll start doing other stuff and chilling out for a bit, and then they'll start declining. Maybe they'll put branches down low to stabilise themselves. Maybe they'll drop a few. Maybe they'll start a secondary canopy and reduce the weight from the outside and bring it closer to the trunk, start hollowing out things like that mm. it's uh they're incredible oak oh. trees especially are just amazing there's so much to learn isn't it and oh, you yeah. spent years obviously building up this expertise yeah well i'm nothing i mean i'm fortunate to know quite a few people who know a hell of a lot more than me uh, so i just follow them around making notes listening asking questions you know keep asking questions i think that's really important outside of work then mm. i mean you've said that you're a you're a rugby player but apart from that um it used to be yeah, yeah yeah did you do you have a big sort of outdoorsy life outside of this or do you find actually that it reminds you too much of work no well i mean it's interesting i i do i spend a lot of time outdoors with my wife and my dog um spend a lot of time walking in places like the seaside um, is a definitely a hot spot because I know next to nothing about the ecology mm. and, and, and the place there. So I can visit as a, a sort of naive tourist mm. um, and really, really relax. I think the problem with managing woods and trees is that after a while, you can't stop looking them in, the, in, in with that sort of professional eye. Yeah, um, and that sort of, you know, oh, I wonder what I do here. Oh, that tree, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, look, mm. come and have a look at this cavity. And think, oh, no, hang on, wait, wait. <laughs> supposed to be just take yourself for a relax, walk here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, definitely go down to the coast. Uh, which we're you know fortunate to, to live pretty close to the south coast and it, it's a wonderful place to be uh, especially places like seven sisters and you know worthing seafront places like that. i do like that mm. um and then i've recently taken on an allotment oh, which is wow. my way of getting outdoors and, and not having anything like work near me yeah. which is nice uh, so i am uh, about to launch a, a bombardment of questions to our market gardeners down 
um, that swallows there uh, for hints and tips yes. um, because I'm not entirely sure what we're going to do with that. Have you got anything <laughs> on it at the moment? Uh, there's, there's a plum tree and an apple tree. Oh, um, in fact, I had some of the plums off it last night and they're fantastic. Oh, um, so I did bring a small punnet of those for the, for the market gardeners this morning with a little note saying expect questions. Um, I like the bribes yeah. already. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, bribery <laughs> works really well around here. Um, so uh, yeah, no, looking forward to getting stuck into that. Uh, but yeah, being outdoors is really important to me. Um, you know, I've got stand-up paddleboard this year, um, which I've only fallen off once so far, which is good news. Um, and um, anything I can do that's new and exciting outdoors is, is just you know, a big plus. So why is it so important to you? How does it make you feel? Um, I think it's peaceful. I think it's, um, it's natural, isn't it, to spend time outdoors. Um, I think it's really important part of being human is to associate yourself with the natural world and with the with everything that's going on in 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 you know today's crisis and it you know it's a nature crisis that we're in um really important to recognize it and to find out what you can do about it and and, and to and to act on that and i find that going into nature and going into wild spaces encourages me refuels my passion and lets me get back out there and, and do some work um, to try and tackle those things um, and at the same time you know as recharging my batteries for, for going back to work I just find it immensely easy to relax outside and I'm not the sort of person who sits on the sofa for long periods of time um, I just enjoy being out and about and I relax by doing things as well so if even if the doing thing is just going for a walk I find that much more relaxing than, than sitting down um, and like I say I just think it's in us to just be outdoors you know, it's fantastic for your mental health, for your physical health, um, and just, yeah, great for your soul, isn't it, really? So, in the future, then, mm. do you foresee that, you know, the Ancient Tree Forum and, and being a ranger, is this, you know, what would you, your future goals be? I don't really have future goals. I don't really set um, goals like that, I suppose. I have short-term ones, like get this bit of work done quick so I can stop <laughs> thinking about it. Um, but in terms of long-term goals, I think it's just, it's just to remain happy, full of energy, passionate about what I do. You know, that really does drive me to get up early in the mornings and come in and, and, and work hard and um, be surrounded by good people. Um, just keep those things together will be great. And fortunately for me, I'm, I'm surrounded by great people, great work, um, and it's working, which is fab. Cheers, mate. It's quite plain, isn't it? Is it? Is it? I don't know. I mean, it looks like it. My lunch being delivered. That's no, not. <laughs> it's a big lunch. So, how do you think the outdoors has impacted your life, Tom? I think it's shaped it entirely. Um, you know, even from you know being a child and just enjoying being out on a bike in a forest somewhere, um, or just you know being up to mischief in the forest. Uh, I did actually end up working with people later in my career who managed the forest I used to get up to mischief in, so I had to apologise profusely and make them coffee for a few years. Um, but um, I think it's just, it's just everything to me. Um, you know, if I can continue working in it and spending all my time outdoors, then, you know, that, that'll be a really good life led, I think. Um, and yeah, just being involved as well is, is, is fantastic. And being having the opportunity, and I'm really lucky to do this, is get other people involved as well you know a big part of my role is working with volunteers if I can give them access to the to the countryside to nature uh, and to be a part of it I know that it's great for them um, and, and and that's a really you know that's a privilege to do really. spreading the message absolutely yeah. absolutely and, and then in turn they're also spreading that message so you know it's like a 
you know, it's a thing. If you can um, introduce others and they can introduce others, there'll be a long chain of people who are passionate about the outdoors and um, are aware of its importance, and, and that's fantastic. Tom, who are the three people who have inspired your outdoors life? Oh, well, that's a really easy question to answer. Thank you so much for, uh, for asking that one. <laughs> that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Okay, well, um, I think firstly it would be my dad, um, you know, um, all the time. Because, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I'm not from a rural background. It's not like my dad's a farm or anything like that. Um, you know, he used to work for the local authority. And when I was looking through these courses like country man countryside management, you know, he backed me 100% and he said, you know, do something you're passionate about. You know, he never said, you know, make sure you earn lots of money um, or you can have a big house or anything like that. It was all about find something that you're really passionate about and, and go do. And he supported me through that and um, helped me, you know, move to Aberystwyth University and, and supported me through, you know, uh, being an apprentice after coming back from, you know, university and all that kind of stuff and, and was always there encouraging me to do stuff. So he's definitely um, up there in, in, in that three. Uh, my wife inspires me loads. You know, she hears me moan all the time. She hears me come back with aches and pains and, oh my God, it's dark and I start in the dark and I finish in the dark and all that kind of stuff. But she, she encourages me and motivates me all the time. Um, so she's a huge part of that for me. And then my third one, and this, this is you know, a bit tongue in cheek, is I used to watch as a kid a lot of Monica the Glen, the TV show. I used to love that I show. I loved it, honestly. I just, <laughs> I couldn't get enough of it. Um, and there's a character called Golly in that. Yes. And I always thought, oh, I could be Golly. Not as miserable as his character was, but um, I thought, yeah, that'd be a cool job. And that, I, I think I'm the closest that I could get to that now. So uh, yeah, thanks Golly. <laughs> big golly from Monica the Glen. Oh, terrible. What a nightmare. That's amazing. Tom, tips then. Where in the country do you think people can find the best ancient trees, in your opinion? In my opinion, yeah. I think the two hotspots for me, my, my personal favourites, are um, Petworth Park in West Sussex, which okay. is a stone's throw away from here. They've got some of the most beautiful oak and sweet chestnut veteran trees that I've ever seen. They are marvellous to behold. They are fantastic. I strongly recommend you get down there. Of course, Nep has some fantastic oak trees here. We are, we are surrounded in big oak trees, mm. like the Nep oak, uh, which you can see on the red, uh, the red Walk if you're visiting us. The other place I, I would encourage people to go to if they can, of course, is Epping Forest, which is wonderful, wonderful place with, with some fantastic oak trees in there and, and beech trees and things like that. It's, it's a nice one. Yeah, not too far from London as well for people who live there. No, no, no. You easily hop on a train and bus, I think. I don't know London very well. Yeah, we well, definitely can. <laughs> yeah. I'm making it up. Um, so what are the trees in Epping Forest that you particularly like? I saw some fantastic oak trees. I was there on a on a course with the Ancient Tree Forum looking at tree architecture uh, a few months ago. Um, and uh, we were looking at um, behavioural uh, growth habits, behaviours um, of trees and the different models that different species fit into in different times of their life, life cycles and stuff. And it, it opened a, a window to, to look at trees slightly differently, which is, is fantastic. Um, but just, yeah, I think it'd be the oaks there that were, that were marvellous. They're just, yeah, fantastic trees. And it's such an old site there that you could sort of look down a line of these old trees and you sort of the romantic in you could look down this path and think 
who's walked down here you know who's been here before who's who's touched this tree and you know what kind of history and what kind of stories could these trees tell if, if they could talk um so yeah yeah oaks at epping nice good tip one. and then how about um resources for people who want to learn more about particularly ancient and veteran trees definitely ancient tree forum um, have a look at their website um, there's loads it doesn't matter where you are in the country there are local groups that you can join walks on obviously Sussex here um, but you know places like Cornwall got really active groups there's if you go on the website you can see all the subdivisions and you can join a walk near you um, and those walks are really accessible they're really friendly informal opportunities to go and ask questions ask people questions it's all about it's all about generating discussion and having these fantastic uh, communications about uh, ancient trees veteran trees you know everything from what are they to what makes it good to how do we look after this specific tree what what could we do better what is going well with this specific tree um, so really get 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 on that ancient tree forum website and then of course you've got great people like the the woodland trust as well to to get in touch with and um, a lot of this information is is free to you on the internet as well um, so it won't cost a lot of money to to get in there and have a look um, secondhand bookshops are full of tree books as well um, which is where I can be found sometimes uh, in the tree section um, so yeah just just pick up pick up a book pick up your, your phone or your tablet or whatever get, get onto the websites and, and start browsing and you'll see opportunities there to to, to get involved and, and to learn more and there's never a bad time to learn more about trees well I've learned a lot from you today about trees and of NEP Fantastic. and thank you so much for this amazing conversation and also the walk around NEP because it's welcome. been a beautiful walk we've seen so much wildlife beautiful trees and I think we're going to finish our walk by going around and, and going back onto the orange route are we yeah absolutely we'll jump yeah. back on the orange route and we'll go across the river across the bridge I'll show you the river restoration project and some yes. new trees that have been planted as part of the trout project and, and things like that there's uh, yeah quite a lot to see on the way back actually oh, it's a very special day thank you so much you're very welcome thanks for having me Thank you for listening to Tom's episode. Stick around for the calming minute of nature sounds I recorded recently at NEP. To see photos and watch snippets of my recording with Tom, head to Instagram at The Outdoors Fix. You'll also find Tom on Instagram at rustic underscore ranger. Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell's The Book of Wilding is a practical handbook for rewilding and it's available in bookshops now. And did you know that The Outdoors Fix is now also a book? It was my big project last year and it's packed full of 30 of my podcast guest stories, tips and beautiful photographs to show you how you can get outdoors more and feel the benefits. The Outdoors Fix book is available to buy through the link in the podcast show notes as well as the Vertebrate Publishing website and in bookshops. Regular listeners of The Outdoors Fix will know that I end each episode with some sounds of nature and today's one is very special. It's that time to take a short moment to relax and listen to some birdsong I recorded on the Nepp Estate when I was there. I hope you enjoy it. Until next time. <laughs>